Welcome to Boogers and Bad Drivers, a <laughs> podcast where we talk about the things that we hate. I'm Audrey Stratton. <laughs> I'm Carmen Thorley. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's really- All right. Um, Maybe I should have given you a I'll heads up about, about that. that. <laughs> if you want to do it again, I just wasn't expecting it. No, no. Let's just keep on going okay, forward. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, um... <laughs> We have this podcast that we created because there are a lot of things that we love, and we just want to like bring some brightness and goodness to the world. Positivity. And we want to talk about the things that we like, and we want other people to like it. But as we've been researching the things that we like, and as we've talked about them, we've come to realize that there are things that we actually don't like, and we just need to get it off of our chests every once in a while. It's not. Yeah, it's not good to let things build up and and just fester. So every once in a while, we've decided we're going to do an episode called Boogers and Bad Drivers. <laughs> and it's going to be about things that we don't like. I Like, for example, I don't like boogers or bad drivers. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's where the, the title oh, comes from. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're going to start out with a little lightning round rather than doing like a full potpourri episode because I have something prepared. Okay. But I wanted us, do you feel okay with doing like a lightning round of things that we just don't like? Yes. Do a little bit of potpourri. Okay. Let's watch the time now. And five minutes from now, I'm going to go ahead and segue into the thing that I want to talk about. Oh. Uh, I'm going to start off by saying I don't like whiny songs about the woman who is walking away. Oh. Where are the songs from the point of view of the woman walking away? Like she's walking away for a yeah, reason. It's not Come because on. he was perfect and completely nice and good to her. There's something there. <laughs> There's something that, and we're just, we're hearing it from the whiny. I want to know why she's walking away point of view. That's a, that's a good one. I hate that too. I hate wooden banisters. (laughs) And let me just explain. (laughs) What? In my parents' house where I grew up, uh, we have a deck that goes into our backyard and um, I would always go outside and play in the backyard and run down the stairs and slide my hand on this wooden banister that wasn't completely finished. It was kind of splintering and falling apart. And I received a very traumatizing splinter in my hand. And so oh. I can't hold wooden banisters. I, I don't even care if it's polished. I, don't, if it, I can't hold wooden banisters anymore. I, I hate, I hate oh, them. Oh, man. <laughs> Aww, it's very specific, but it's very... It's it yeah. It's, it's real. real. <laughs> it's real. Yeah. I want to know why bulk sugar smells like poo. I hate oh it. Oh my gosh. Is it doesn't something that tastes shouldn't it shouldn't it smell as good as it tastes? It doesn't make any you sense. You would think. Even like you would think even like a little handful of sugar doesn't smell like the big buckets of sugar that we had at the bakery. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. gnarly. Yeah. And I think that it's probably something that only like bakers probably or or cooks no but sugar in bulk smells like it poo does. it's really bizarre. whenever we have to top off our bins and we have to take those big 50 pound bags of sugar like it's awful yeah, it just wafts right up into your face it's bad Ugh. um okay i hate line cutting <laughs> and I'm not even like a staunch i this isn't i don't think this is uncommon but i know that there are some people that just don't care but i I don't follow a lot of rules like to a T, but this one I am so con- like I am I have my convictions about this one. Like it is yes. it is not okay. <laughs> yeah, I I I agree with you. I man, I think I'm finally growing up and getting to the point where I might 
in the next two or three times that it happens to me, I might call someone out for it. Maybe. I am getting so I am close. not aggressive or assertive enough to call someone that's out the for thing it, but is if it happens you, to like, me. You, you should be able to do that without being scared. Like, I think the worst thing that could happen is that they just kind of, like, laugh at you and just stay there, which would suck, but... Man, yeah. I, I, I'm kind of getting to that point, too, like where I just want to say, hey, yeah, it just excuse me, but I was, I was in front of you. I'm going to move in front of you now. I'm going to cut in front of you like you did. OK, cool. Yeah. <laughs> now everything's yeah. right. Again. No, it's part of it's part of the social contract. It's the unspoken, yeah, unwritten you words. You wait your turn. Of, <laughs> you know, living as a civilized member of society It's kind of like uh, I guess I will count this as my next one. People who don't put their shopping carts in the shopping cart it's stalls after they've taken their groceries out to their car. Why? That's cars. It's just and yeah, and Nick and I have this joke because we shop at Winco, and Winco is great at having those corrals uh-huh. like every fifth parking spot, so you don't even have to walk very far. The maximum distance away you are from the closest one is like three cars, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we have this ongoing joke where. If he's driving and I have to take the car back to the corral, I'll come back and I'll be like, I'm so glad you didn't leave without me. And he's like, I almost forgot that you were with me. (laughs) It just took so much time and I forgot why I was waiting here. (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. (laughs) I hate green beans. And I'm not a a child that just hates green beans green things i broccoli is one of my favorite like food in the world no lie i love broccoli i love spinach but there is something about the not only the taste of green beans but the texture okay there's two types of green beans that i particularly hate <laughs> the canned okay. the canned green beans which i had growing up which are super like they give you your, your your nutrition they're really easy to prepare and stuff so i understand why my my mom used them but they made me gag like she had to do the whole okay well you're 5 years old so eat five more big spoonfuls it was my it was my Everest. It was all, it was so difficult. And then there's the, the kind of the freshest ones where when you bite into them, it squeaks, it like squeaks against your teeth. Oh yeah. Why does it do that? (laughs) It ain't natural, man. (laughs) Yeah. Green beans. They're my, they're my one true enemy. I hate those women's shirts and dresses that have like the mixed patterns between the torso and the sleeves. (laughs) So, like, you know the, the the shirts that have, like, the floral print torso, uh-huh. but then the sleeves are, like, striped? Right, right. I hate yeah. those. Because I think that, like, when I put clothes on, most, not most of the time, but some of the time I'll look at the outfit that I'm wearing and I'm thinking, if someone were to take a picture of me in this outfit today and my kids 30 years in the future are going to look back and be like, uh-huh, I can't believe you wore that. Because everybody does right. that, right, to their parents. Ah, I can't believe you styled your hair like that. I can't believe you wore that. I think there are some styles that do last. Yeah. And I think we see that with, like, you know, I think right now we're seeing kind of a resurgence of the 50s style. Yeah. With the really clean cut, like, silhouette, and you've got, like, kind of the wider necks. Yeah, absolutely. And sure, you know, things like that. I think that this particular style is going to be so dated. I do not see this style lasting. And I already think it's ugly to begin yeah. with. Can you imagine how ugly it's going to look even 15 years in the future? Mm-hmm. It's probably like, I just 15 years worse. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I just, I don't see it lasting. And I, Ugh, no, no. Yeah, it's a pretty bad one. Um, <clears throat> I hate the song Mrs. Robinson. 
And before <laughs> I continue, I want to make it clear that I love Simon and Garfunkel and I love The Graduate. I think The Graduate's probably my top five favorite movies of all time. And ironically enough, I, I really hate Dustin Hoffman. It's weird. I, I don't, okay. <laughs> anyway, just a really, really quick story. When it, my parents went out of town one time, I was staying with my friend for a week and we'd sleep in her room and, you know, play games and go to school and have after school snacks and stuff. Um, and she fell asleep really fast, but I take, I've always taken a really long time to fall asleep. Uh, she would listen to the Nutcracker on her big boom box while she was going to sleep and she'd be out by like less than halfway through. And the next CD after um, The Nutcracker was a CD that had the song Mrs. Robinson just playing over and over and over and over again. And I was already scared being in this strange place that I couldn't sleep. It was a weird pasture out the window that I was just convinced a monster was going to come out of. And in the background, I just hear that little... And now every time it comes on... I'm just, I just, I'm, I'm that like terrified little girl again that just hate, I, I couldn't get up to turn the boombox on. I was too scared. If I got out of bed, monsters were going to get me too. I hate that song. I hate it. Oh no. <laughs> oh, no. <sighs> I, mm, I don't, this is something that I guess is more, I don't understand, but I also just dislike it. And it may be because I don't understand it. I don't understand why biting one's lip is supposed to be sexy. <laughs> Like, all of the, ad- like, like lingerie ads where, like, the women are biting their lips. Like, I don't, I don't understand yeah, I don't it. Either. And it's a very common theme. Yeah. Like, you know, when a woman is supposed to look sexy, like, she's biting her lip. And but I'm like, what does like, it mean? But, like, why? Well, and it's funny, too, because it always has to be the lower lip. Because if you bite mm-hmm. the upper lip, it, it's the exact opposite of sexy. <laughs> I want to see more ads like that. to make all lip biting. <laughs> Just like this, lip this biting. great big portrait of this woman in this expensive lingerie that has this little grump face. <laughs> I'd probably buy it. I would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I hate Taylor Swift's new single. <laughs> and I'm That's so fair. sorry. <laughs> No, it's fine. I, I think I it was, was really I, So I had, sorry, you go first. I had texted you earlier this week with my request for your hot take uh-huh. on it. And I'm kind of glad that you saved it for this because, uh, you know, at first I was like, oh, no, she doesn't want to talk about it. And I was like, no, nah, she's going to save it for yeah, the pod. I, and I wanted to. I think, I think it's good to do kind of like a Kanye update because <laughs> the song is about Kanye West. I mean, it's about a lot it's of other celebrities that she's had feuds with, but the very first part of her song is about Kanye and I just I I like Taylor and I think that the music itself is fine but Taylor if you're going to like get back at these people just continue to be successful that's all you need to do is you just need to keep on writing these number one hits and keep on selling a hundred million copies of your album and just keep doing that And that's the best revenge that you can take on it's them. Just, you don't need to write a song about it. I know, it's just it. interesting that I, I feel like one of the themes of the song was, you know, like I have, I've had a reputation and these are kind of like my past little selves and stuff. But I was kind of hoping that the song would have just kind of, I'm moving past that, I don't care anymore. But the whole song, again, was about other people. <laughs> and yeah. I, ju- and I, I couldn't, I just couldn't get into it. I, I thought the end was really clever where she's talking to all of her weird music video persons. I thought that was pretty yeah. cute and clever, but yeah, I don't know. I, I hope, yeah. 
I hope it's I, the I mean, outlier I can, in the album. I think it's good that she's taking ownership of it. Like, that's the one positive thing mm-hmm. that I'll say about it, is that she's taking ownership of, like, in the video, for example, it's not part of the song, but she has that imagery of, like, there was that controversy when the Bad Blood music video mm-hmm. came out that, like, oh, this was her squad, and then some of the women involved were like, I'm not friends with her, like, I just did the video right. with her, I'm not part of her squad. And so, like, she kind of acknowledges that controversy by saying, like, a lot of people think that I was trying to make clones yeah. and, you know, brainwash them, and so she kind of owns that imagery. Yeah. And, like, I can appreciate that, but, yeah, like, just... <sighs> Taylor, I thought you were better than this, and I'm disappointed that you're not. I'm I'm just, I'm convinced that she's not, and it's just kind of a big bummer to me. I feel bad that, I, I don't know, I, (laughs) I hate that I'm saying this, but I do think there has been some, there were, there was rudeness on both sides. (laughs) Yeah. I, like... Kanye's a Kanye's a jerk. We know that, and he he pushes Taylor, but there was a lot of things that Taylor, you know, has done in respect of that whole Kanye Kim controversy too. That is just kind of a little um, damaging to her character. But I, I I really like you said. I really hoped that she would just kind of like stand up and move on. Yeah, yeah. It seems petty at this point. It really does. It's it's old. Anything else? I dislike disney's 1991 beauty and the beast really the cartoon one yes yes that's weird that's and actually yeah i know it's a super super unpopular opinion and this is actually going to be the main part of our episode here and i want to like i want to establish something before people like turn off the podcast (laughs) like no i don't have to listen to this the hate is not for the like music or the animation it's actually like the story itself in the way that it's told because i think overall it's an enjoyable movie to watch Mm -hmm. i really do i i I enjoy it it's just as someone who loves fairy tales as evidenced by (laughs) By the second episode (laughs) our second episode um i have read a lot of versions of beauty and the beast and i've watched a lot of versions of beauty and the beast it is easily I'm going to call it the second most popular fairy tale to ever be told. And this is just after Cinderella. Oh, yeah. I was about to ask. Yeah. The first <laughs> one is definitely Cinderella. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just, I, oh boy. <laughs> like what's, yeah. So like what, did they tell the story wrong or did they leave out key elements or something? Like what's. They changed some of the key elements to the point where it's like just not true to the original story at all. So and what is I'm, the original story? Well, the original story, if we really want to get technical, I think like, we do. really want to get technical with it, the original story is actually the tale of Cupid and Psyche. Oh, uh, from yeah. uh, mythology. Yeah, yeah, Greek mythology. Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Yeah. Oh, I guess uh, it makes sense, though. Yeah, because, like, the story of a woman falling in love with a beastly man and then finding out that he's a prince is actually a story that's been told many, many times throughout mm-hmm. history. Many times. Cupid and Psyche is perhaps, like, the most popular and also earliest written oh, yeah. record of that story. But, you know, I'm sure that there are historians that would say, like, well, no, if you go back further. Right. I'm going to start with Cupid and Psyche, though. Awesome. So for those who are not familiar, 
with the story of Cupid and Psyche. I'm going to try and keep this to like a 30 second, uh, like minute and a half. <laughs> yeah. Give yourself enough time. <laughs> I'm not good at really well, summarizing you can only, these. You can only, you know, dilute things so much. You have to, yeah. you have to give all the information. Right. The story starts with a king and queen who had three daughters that were all very, very beautiful. But the youngest, Psyche, was the most beautiful by far. She was so beautiful, in fact, that people were starting to worship her instead of Venus. <laughs> now, if you know anything about Greek gods and goddesses, they, they are, are nasty, short-tempered, jealous. and vengeful. <laughs> <laughs> jealous. Super, super jealous. So yeah, Venus was not very happy about this, and she wanted to curse Psyche as a result. She asks Cupid to set up Psyche with a monster. You know, shoot your <laughs> arrows, do your thing with... Yeah you know psyche and a monster cupid instead decides to scratch himself with one of his arrows and he falls madly in love with psyche Hmm. meanwhile down on earth the king is very concerned that his youngest hasn't been able to find love yet he goes to an oracle who tells him that psyche is fated to fall in love with the most horrific monster imaginable psyche ever the loyal and obedient daughter allows herself to be dressed up and taken to the peak of a rocky crag and the west wind takes her away just Hmm. like whisks her off that's magical it is. It's very... If it weren't so horrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she then finds herself in a beautiful palace, uh, except she's all alone. With the exception of a disembodied voice that helps her out. Like, hey, you're here, you're safe, you're good. That night, her husband finds her and makes her his lover in the dark. So she can't see who her husband is at all. <laughs> she assumes that her husband is an awful monster, as that is what the oracle said. But she eventually does fall in love with him. So the story goes on from there for quite a while, but the first act is obviously the most important one when it comes to talking about the version of Beauty and the Beast that we are familiar with now, which was written by a woman named Villeneuve. There's been a lot of similar stories from all around the world, like between the Greek fairy tale and the French novella, that for the interest of time, I'm just going to skip over those. Okay. <laughs> just I'm just going to acknowledge that they exist. All right, awesome. The modern story of Beauty and the Beast was written in the early 1700s by a woman named Madame Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve. Wow. Very French. Yeah, beautiful. She was. You, <laughs> thanks. You just aced that pronunciation. Oh, <laughs> thanks. I don't think I actually did, but I appreciate the I compliment. Think you did. Okay, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, and I'm actually going to go into her biography just a little bit because. There are some things that happen in her life that very clearly influence her story. And it's really, really interesting to know these things. Awesome. She was born in Paris in the year 1685, and she was born to a powerful family, but not to royalty. She was married off in an arranged marriage at the age of 21. And for all intents and purposes, it wasn't a particularly happy marriage, but it didn't last long as her husband actually died five years later. Oh, dear. So, I mean... On the one hand, like, boo, arranged marriage, unhappy marriage. But on the other hand, like, there you go. Well, <laughs> didn't last too long. <laughs> Shortly after that, she ran out of her family's fortune and she had to find work for herself. This is another fact that clearly shows up as an important influence mm-hmm. in her novella. So she started writing in the 1730s, which I actually find very encouraging. Oh, <laughs> because yeah. if the author of one of the most famous stories of all time didn't even start publishing works until she was 50, oh, yeah. there's still hope for me. There's still hope for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to accomplish your dreams, people. Write that book. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless the of French age. lady. I can't remember Go for her it. Name. 
Beauty and the Beast was published in the year 1740, and boy howdy is her version a lot to unpack. Yeah. The novel actually starts in the middle of the story, and after the part that most people consider the end, we actually get the backstory for both Beauty and the Prince. Hmm. I'm going to go ahead and give you a good summary of what happened, but... I'm going to start in chronological order. Okay. So rather than starting at the beginning of her story Which and then the summarizing, middle. I'm going to start, yeah, I'm going to start at the very, very beginning. All right, let's hear it. It starts with fairies. Oh, Which fairies. I love so much. I love so much. There was a lack and- of fairies in most Beauty and the Beast adaptations Mm -hmm. i've seen (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah most of them just have like an enchantress which isn't really a fairy no no and i i mean if you listen to episode two you know how much i love fairies and i love fairy politics (laughs) and this is just stuffed with fairy politics i love it i love it so much the story focuses on three fairies in particular None of them have names, unfortunately, so for the interest of kind of keeping things clear, I'm going to call them the evil one, the good one, and the young one. Okay. In this setting, fairies have a duty to mankind to use their powers to help out the more pathetic human (laughs) beings. And fairies are elevated so far above humans that all humans are pathetic. So they have to help out humans wherever possible on the condition that they don't get too attached to humankind. Hmm. The young fairy is very foolish, and while she's on a beautiful island kingdom to test the goodness of men, and specifically the king, she ends up falling in love with him, and he falls in love with her. They get married, and they have a beautiful baby girl. Despite her disguise and efforts, the fairy council finds out that she's kind of tied herself down to one place, neglecting her duties as a fairy to help all of mankind, and they take her back to the kingdom of the fairies and imprison her for her crime. The evil fairy, who is curious about this king that went over a fairy, disguises herself and attempts to get the king to fall in love with her. He, distraught at the loss of his wife, can only find consolation in his daughter, and so the evil fairy figures that an easy way to help with her problem is to curse the daughter. She is fated to only marry a beast. Now, in comes the good fairy, and this is where logic gets a little convoluted here. The good fairy figured that This was probably only the beginning of the evil fairy's shenanigans. (laughs) And so (laughs) she takes the child and some of the child's clothes, tears up the clothes, smears it with blood, puts it in like a bear's den and makes it look like the baby has died. Oh, dear. So as you can imagine, the king is just totally wrecked at this point. Cannot function. Yeah. But it did encourage the evil fairy to just leave. Like, he is beyond seducing at this point. Yeah. The good fairy takes this princess, finds a family that has a sick, dying baby that she can switch out in the middle of the night, and no one's the wiser. Now, fairies are supposed to be helping out all mankind, right? This means that they're doing a lot of multitasking. So at roughly the same time that all of this is happening, the evil fairy and the good fairy are asked to help out with a young prince in a kingdom in turmoil. See, this particular kingdom, the king had recently died, and the queen had decided to personally take up arms and lead her troops out to the borders in order to defend her kingdom from neighboring kings that see her womanliness as weakness. (laughs) And want to take it as an you know they want to take it as an opportunity to take over her lands, and she does a pretty good job of it. Yeah. And I really love this part of the story because it's like 
battle queen. Heck yeah. Yeah, seriously. I am like 100% behind this. Yeah, protect your own. In a twist that should surprise no one of the female population, (laughs) all the kings of the neighboring kingdoms are like, well, her last victory was just a fluke, so there's no way a queen could easily defend us men because of skill. Yeah. It was only luck. Oh, good. Yes, keep thinking that. Go ahead. <laughs> this time, this time we'll be successful in taking over her kingdom. And so, unfortunately, she has to continue to battle for many years. The good fairy and the evil fairy become the young prince's kind of aunts and raise him in their own unique ways. <laughs> Like, you know, good fairy raises him to be good, and evil fairy is, like, kind of questionable yeah. in, in her methods. I guess, you know, at least he's going to be well-balanced. Uh, yes. <laughs> One day, the evil fairy disappears for a day, and she comes back acting all strange. Instead of acting like the prince's aunt, she's starting to hit on him, which is kind of gross. Oh, no, that's beyond <laughs> gross. One, because she's been, like, a mother figure to him for almost his entire life. And two, because she is old, like super yeah. old, like, like fairy. Yeah, old. <laughs> like fairies are able to live for a long time anyway and still be beautiful. But she is so old that she's starting to look like a hag. And you have to understand, like, yeah. fairies can enchant themselves to look young, but only until they get so old and ugly. And even then, it's like you're beyond help. Yeah. So naturally, the oh, yeah. prince is like, yeah, no, n- no. <laughs> And no, the evil, f- yeah. <laughs> the evil fairy gets pretty upset at this, and she kind of overreacts. She curses the prince to become a beast, and the only way that he can break the curse is if a beautiful young woman agrees to marry him. Now, I want to point out that this is the first major plot element that tends to get changed in modern retellings, with Disney's version being the most famous one that that kind of started mm-hmm. off this trend. The curse wasn't that the young woman had to fall in love, only that she had to agree to marry him. And there's an important distinction there. And it's one that, like, if you go back to Villeneuve's life, she did not get the choice to fall in love. Right. She had to marry someone in an arranged marriage. Wow. And so, like, if you kind of look at it through that lens, I'm sure that she looked at her future husband and was like, what if he is a beast? Or maybe hopefully he'll turn out to be better then I, you know, it's very unknown. And so characterizing this big unknown, like physically speaking as a beast, I think is a really interesting take on arranged marriage. Yeah. And actually going back into the story, had it been the former where she had to fall in love with him, it actually would have been a fairly easy task for the prince. Because despite the fact that the evil fairy had co-raised him and he could have been an absolutely horrid person, He instead took from his mother and the good fairy and ended up a very good-natured, charming young man. He could have easily won over Mm. a young woman if he was allowed to use his words. So part of the curse was that if he ever, ever said anything to charm the young woman, the curse would be permanent. He would not have the chance to break the curse at all, and he would be a beast forever. That doesn't make, that's like, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) No, it's not. She's an evil fairy. It doesn't have to be fair. Mm. (laughs) I want her to have her comeuppance. <laughs> the evil fairy then, She's like, playing the game. runs off to go finish throwing her tantrum somewhere else. And that's the last of, that we see of her for a good long while. This is all taking place <laughs> in, like, a chateau in the countryside, which is convenient because the people of this country know that the prince is not in the main palace while his mother is away at battle. So, you know, that plot 
hole mm. is closed up there. The yeah. only issue at that point is the servants at the chateau. You can't have them running away. So the good fairy comes in and turns them all to stone. Yeah, so oh. she's a really good fairy. Yeah, she is. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm inclined to trust her because of her name, but that sounds kind of strange to me. <laughs> but she is called the good fairy, so I guess Oh, it's no, good. and she sets a few enchantments here and there to make sure that the prince is still comfortable because, like, can't live without servants, right? Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's true. Stone, though. Stone is a worse, I think, a worse fate than candlestick. I think so, too. Yeah, I think that's one, like, it's courtesy that Disney gives to the curse. Yeah, I'm sure that's the, good the first of many. also happens to know of a young woman who is cursed to marry a beast. Convenient. Yeah, very convenient. So she sets up a plot to get the young woman she rescued years ago to meet up with the beastly prince. The family that she had given the baby princess to had recently fallen on hard times. Their mother is dead and their father's shipping business has gone under. The young woman and her six brothers and five sisters and father move out to the country to become farmers. Did you know that Beauty had siblings and not just one or two, but lots? No, no they know. Yeah. It, is ne- it was never talked about. Is that supposed to kind of be? Is that supposed to kind of be implied in the movies, or did they Mm-mm. just completely drop? No, them? her family over time just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And like the first step of shrinking, I can understand because six brothers and five sisters is a lot. Redonkulous. Yeah. <laughs> so is it kind of like a? Is it a fairy tale trope, or is it a Disney trope to have like you know missing parents Disney. or a kind of a one hundred percent a Disney trope? Yeah. Yeah, because, and in, in, this is kind of sidestepping into just generic fairy tale tropes. It's actually more important to have parents there because they can cause issues. Um, yeah. And, and they can actually step in as some of the, like, obstacles that the protagonist has to overcome. Disney yeah, has kind really of useful. changed that into more, we want classic villains and we want tragedy mm-hmm. to happen and we just really want to put our protagonist through the ringer which i think is actually much more uninteresting than having a parent that well it's kind of it it, it's contrived emotions Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like i don't know i think it it, i wouldn't say it's more realistic if you just kind of had the family issues or you know or the family is kind of where the evil or the villain comes from or something like that but it just it's easy when it's just kind of like this strange villain you know, that just kind of comes out of nowhere. But and I, I think havoc. it is more realistic to have problems coming from family. If you, if oh, you yeah, think about, I mean, I'm thinking about some of the friends that I've talked to about their personal issues over the last couple of years. And 90% of those issues have come about because of family and mm-hmm. parents wanting something different for them than they want or parents just kind of generally being buttheads or you know yeah. siblings it's real it's happening it's still yeah happening. and it happens it's yeah it happens until you know you're an adult it happens when you have grandkids you know i'm looking i, I i've known people who have children who are graduated and their children have children and i can see this dynamic between like hey mom like don't tell me how to parent my children you know and yeah, and so it happens yeah. till you know for a person's entire life uh yep. so yeah like it's actually 
really important that she has siblings in this because it's her sisters that cause some of the problems later on in the story. Her brothers loved her very much. She was very optimistic through these hard times, and she would sing to them while they worked out in the fields, and she was obviously very beautiful, so they got a lot of people coming to them, like, wanting to help out and just, like, giving them stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that sounds a little, like, exploitative, but, you know, if you're on hard times, you take what you can get. Take what you can get. Yeah. (laughs) Beauty actually doesn't really have a name. Beauty is her nickname given to her by the villagers, So it's kind of, I don't know, nobody really has names in the tale. There's always just like the noble fairy and the young fairy or the fairy sister. Yeah, like there's no names. So I guess. That's kind of a, it's weird, but it's kind of a fun aesthetic too. It's just kind of this uh, far away little Mm -hmm. fairy tale. Yeah. As I said, her, her sisters were not a fan. As you can imagine, they were very jealous of her and all of the attention that she got. Um, And they also couldn't believe that anybody could possibly be so happy during such hard times. And they essentially thought that she was being (laughs) fake for the sake of making the rest of them look bad. Which, that's one of those things that really, like, reflects on their character, right? Like, assuming the worst of others. Oh, yeah, that just says so much more about them than it does about (laughs) beauty. Things get worse (laughs) when their father finds out that one of his ships has returned home. All of the daughters, except for Beauty, assume that with the turn of his ship... All of their fortune has returned, so they ask their father to bring back dresses and jewels and trinkets and fancy cloth. Beauty doesn't want anything, but she knows that it'll make her sisters resent her even more if she says so. So she only asks for her father to return with a rose for her so she can start growing them at their humble country home. Oh, that's it sweet, is really actually. sweet. <laughs> the father, it turns out, has a lot more debts to pay off than he previously thought. So his trip back to port is actually kind of a bust. Figuring that he ha- doesn't have much else to do, he turns around and heads back home. On the way home, he actually gets very, very lost and finds himself at a lovely royal chateau. There, oh, yeah. That yeah, sounds familiar. <laughs> there, he is treated very well, even though he doesn't see a single soul. He rests, he eats, and is given many gifts to take back with him. On his way out, he sees a rose garden and remembers his promise to beauty, and he takes one. He hears this deafening roar, and he's surprised by the beast, who accuses him of being ungrateful for the generosity shown to him. The beast demands that he come back in 30 days to atone for his crime. Turns out this was actually a ruse set up by the good fairy. (laughs) What? She she knew that beauty would want a rose (laughs) and so like she sets up the storm that gets the merchant lost and she tells the beast like she's orchestrating the whole thing once he plucks a rose from a bush you have to get really angry at him because come on like a rose is not that big a deal right no, and from what you said about the prince, he really wouldn't give a flying No, no, he wouldn't. A rose. <laughs> so that's actually one thing that I actually really like about this version of the story, which is it's super contrived and orchestrated, yeah, it, but it's there on purpose. Yeah, I know. And, you know, I was actually, I, I saw the um, original, not the original, the new live action Beauty mm-hmm. and the Beast really recently. I did end up seeing it and the first thing I ended up saying to Michael was that it did, like, the story did feel contrived, but not for the, 
<laughs> like not for the right reasons. Not the like it's not supposed to be contrived like the fairy contriving it. It just kind of seemed like it was kind of yeah. put together. Yeah. And know? that's it didn't seem like a natural. Yeah, story. that's a complaint that a lot of people have had about the new movie. And I'm actually going to address it a little bit later. So yeah, cool. yeah, let's sit on that for just a second and get through the rest of the story because oh boy, cool. like we've unpacked a lot now and there's still a lot more to go through. Yeah, yeah. so the father goes back home, and he tells his family of the incident. Beauty, who is feeling like it's her fault, since she's the one that asked for the rose, tells her family that she'll be going in her father's stead. She goes, and at first she's absolutely terrified of the beast, because, like, she doesn't know, does he want to eat her? Does he want to make her a slave? Like, she just has no idea, and she's terrified. Yeah. It turns out, that he treats her with a great deal of respect, informing her that she is the new mistress of the chateau and that the entire estate is hers to wander as she pleases. He'll stay out of her way in order to make her comfortable. And really the only thing that he asks of her is to have dinner with him every night, which hmm. like, she's not happy about it, but she's like, Oh, okay, sure. It, it yeah. Could be worse. <laughs> uh, she ends up really hating dinner though, because every night, after dinner, he asks her to marry him. But she has the choice. Yeah. She says no every night. Yeah. Um, and it's not even, like, because of the way that he looks, because she's like, okay, well, he looks awful, but he's not treating me horribly. It's just that he doesn't mm-hmm. talk. So, like, she's not charmed no. by him at all. She, no, she's not, like, interested yeah. at all. He's probably pretty boring. Yeah. And so, like, she lives at this chateau. It's great. I mentioned the enchantments, and the enchantments are just so bomb. They are the greatest. I'm not even kidding. I don't know why any adaptation would change any of these details. There's, like, this room full of mirrors, like, these really huge mirrors, but they're not mirrors. They look into all these fantastic events that are happening around the world. Balls, operas, plays, all of these high-class cultural events, and these enchanted mirrors make beauty feel like she's actually there. And also the servant problem from before, you know, like where all of the people turned into stone. Well, you fix that apparently by bringing monkeys into the palace and using them as servants. Oh, well, of course. That would be the first person actually. (laughs) They're great. She first runs into them after she goes into a menagerie that has all these birds in it that can basically talk, right? And the birds work together with these monkeys to put on a play for her. (laughs) And then after the play is done... excellent. So good! I love it so much! Yeah, and once the play is over, the monkeys are like... they Some of them follow her out. And she's like, oh, okay, they're my servants. (laughs) And they dress like people, and they help her out with whatever she wants. And it is just... That is wonderful! So perfect! So perfect! It's so charming! (laughs) At night? It sounds like Yeah, it really is. And at night, things are even better because she dreams of a handsome young man that woos and charms her. And Mm. he alludes to there being something more going on than seems in the chateau, but mostly she's just falling in love with him. Yeah. (laughs) Which is unfortunate because you're like, beauty, beauty. It's a dream. Come on. Just put two and two together. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fairy tale. Like, you know, things just don't happen for right. no reason. <laughs> Eventually she gets bored and she wants to go back to see her family. Um, and it's not boredom in like, oh, I'm so tired of this. It's like, 
more of the existential boredom where she's like, I have unfinished things that I need to take care of, and I know I can't move forward with my life until these things are addressed, right? Mm-hmm. She wants to go back and see her family and just kind of let them know, like, hey, I've got monkeys, so I'm good, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm taking care of. I'm taking care of. <laughs> and she kind of wants to, like, make peace with her sisters as well, and she just wants to, like, let them know, like, hey, like, things are good, right? <laughs> so she goes back home. Mm-hmm. Um, the The beast allows her to go back home, I should say. He makes her promise that she'll return in seven days and warns her that he literally cannot live without her. She goes home, and her family's pretty happy to see her, except for her sisters, who see all of the fine clothing that she's wearing, and they become jealous. Oh, I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. They attempt to sabotage her happiness, and they trick her into staying an extra day, because they're like, well, we're just so sad to see you go. Like, they rub onions on their faces. Please don't leave us. Can you see us crying? Major trick. So on that eighth night, she has actually kind of this awful dream where the handsome young man warns her that he's pretty upset that she didn't follow her promise. And she then sees a vision of the beast who seems to be dead in this mysterious courtyard. When she wakes up, she panics, obviously, and she runs back to the beast's palace and tries to find him. It seems impossible, and she has a difficult time of it until finally she sees that the beast, seemingly dead in the exact same place that she had seen in her dream, is there, and he's just, like, not breathing, and he's very cold. She weeps, and due to her good nature, realizes that even though she probably couldn't actually love him, she would be fine with marrying him. It doesn't seem Hmm. like the worst thing, and if she's gonna be there anyway, she might as well, you know, say yes. So she tells him Mm -hmm. as much, and then bang! It seems like all of these cannons are going off at once all around her, and once the cacophony dies down, in front of her is none other than the handsome young man in her dreams. (laughs) He's so happy that she broke the curse, and she's happy that she gets to marry the man she loves, and the good fairy is just kind of glad this is all over, and the queen, you know the battle queen, the the super awesome one? She's really happy because she's like, okay, a man can finally rule, and I don't have to be a battle queen anymore. I'm tired of this. It's time for me to retire. (laughs) Well, yeah, the queen actually puts up a stink. This is just a little detail. She puts up a stink at first because she's like, I don't want my prince to marry a merchant's daughter. And then the good queen is like, oh, but what if I told you she's half fairy? (laughs) She is conniving. And, And the queen is like, oh, that still doesn't make her a princess. (laughs) <laughs> Good fairy's finally like, uh, fine. Here's her dad, the king. <laughs> and he comes and wow. uh, everybody's family comes and they have a wedding and it's great. Wow. The end. Well, that's yeah. nice. I like yeah, that there's a lot. a lot of things that I really like about this story. Uh, it's obviously a lot. <laughs> and that was just a summary of it. It's It's yeah. a good length novella. Uh, I think it, just depending on like how it's printed or where you buy it, it'll run 150 to like 175 pages. Um, it does take a while to get through, not because of the length, but just because like you have to keep on stopping and like checking yourself, you know, like, okay, this Mm -hmm. is referring to this event that already happened and this takes place in the past and this. So was the original one Mm -hmm. in French then? Yeah. Yeah. 
have you uh, ha- have you tried reading it in French? No. I'd always wonder how like uh, I, I I wonder how it would compare. No. Like the I wonder if the yeah. language changes. It's a lot, something you know? that I do plan on doing one day. I did read the first paragraph because I wanted to double check and make sure that Beauty actually had six brothers and five sisters. <laughs> Wait. <a> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no I'm other than that this. I I haven't attempted to. Uh, shortly after this version was published, a woman named Jeanne-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont very, very, very heavily abridged this story and published a roughly like 15 to 20 page version of it that was a lot more kid-friendly and it was a lot more accessible. It leaves out pretty much the entire backstory of both Beauty's heritage and also how the beast ended up cursed. It's kind of more alluded mm-hmm. to like, I was cursed by an evil fairy, the end. which is a bummer because i really like the idea of this like withered old hag of a evil fairy that's like why won't you fall in love with me (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's uh that's that's something else yeah yeah Yeah, like the only fairy that makes an appearance is the good fairy and she really only shows up in beauty's dreams to encourage her to do the right things like you know, give her a little nudge in the right direction. A lot of the fun stuff mm-hmm. about the Beast's Palace is also left out, so depending on what version of an abridgment you pick up, you might find some illustrations depicting monkeys carrying yeah. around, like, Beauty's train as she wanders <laughs> the castle grounds, but... I would hope so. <laughs> like, they're pretty much gone. Um, yeah, I know, all of the fairy politics is gone, which I didn't mention this in the summary, but I really, I really have to talk about this. This is so important. You can yeah. tell how powerful a fairy is in this world by how many times they have turned themselves into a snake. Um, well, how do you how how do you tell? Well, that because they, do they that? brag about it. It takes like a thousand years to build up like the energy or like I don't know the mojo or whatever what to a snake. I don't know. It's fairies. So do I gross. look like a fairy? I don't know. I feel like you know a lot more about fairies than yeah, I, I do. I mean, I can study them, but I can't get into their heads. <laughs> I don't know why snakes. It's just is so, that is so strange. But yeah, like... Such a specific thing. The, like, the young fairy hasn't turned into a snake yet, so she's not very powerful. But, like, the yeah. bad fairy has done it, like, twice now, <laughs> you know? And so she, no. she's powerful, but also very old. There's, like, council members yeah. that are working on their fourth time of turning into a snake. <laughs> just <laughs> that is so weird it's, of, it's just it's one of those details where it's like okay yes i get why it's left out of retellings because it's like totally yeah. not relevant but no, i love this idea of like i heard that she's working on her third snake transformation <gasps> oh, <laughs> she is going in way too early no way <laughs> No way she's powerful. Like, yeah, I like this uh, idea of gossip in the fairy world of, you know, who's... I like that. And I love the term fairy politics, yeah. too. It's just... It's perfect. Uh, <laughs> They're all in each other's business and stuff. Yeah. But I, I bring up Beaumont's version uh, because it's very important to the history of Beauty and the Beast. It's the one that took the first step towards shaping, like, the Disney animated version into what it is. Which is to say that it cut everything down basically to its core. Like, that is kind of the Mm -hmm. base, like, foundation, I guess. That's the foundation of where a lot of retellings start from. Not the Villanova version, not the one with the monkeys 
and the fairy politics. That's weird. But the yeah. one that's been cut down into more kid-friendly version. It makes sense. It's just... Yeah, it does make sense. It's just a it's shame. It's a shame, yeah. The next version that I'm going to talk about that uses the Beaumont version as a foundation is Jean Cocteau's 1946 film adaptation. So we're jumping ahead mm -hmm. a couple of centuries here. This version was... Yeah. I mean, we're... Uh, sorry, really quick. Were there were there any popular versions in between then, or was this This was the next, the next big, big one. one. You kind of have to remember, like, publishing and buying printed works and like the economy and accessibility like these are all things that made it kind of difficult to do a lot of different retellings up until then obviously yeah. with film technology being what it was by 1946 it made it a lot easier to kind of do a retelling by that point so mm -hmm. i'm sure that there's versions in between beaumont's version and jean cocteau's version but they're not really of note this version was first recommended yeah. to me by my dad, who kind of knows how much I love fairy tales, and he gave me some interesting mm -hmm. film recommendations based off of that, including a film version of the tale Donkey Skin, which I talk about in, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I talked about in the second episode, <laughs> which it's actually a delight to watch. As weird as the story yeah. is, there is a fairy, like a fairy godmother for the princess in this version, who like pulls in all of these anachronisms like she quotes poetry that isn't going to be written for like a century and a half and she shows up at the mm. end in a helicopter and <laughs> it's really goofy so That's he recommended awesome. that to me and he recommended this to me la belle et la bête and i can't remember if he told me to check it out because of the story itself or because we were talking about french directors but either way i ended up checking it out from the library and i am so glad that I did. It is yeah. so surreal. And it's not to say that it's like a surrealist film, because I mean if you've no. watched surrealist films, like they're weird. Yeah, they have they're very they're very specific yes. and yeah. <laughs> um but Cocteau knows exactly what to do to make everything feel very dreamlike. So when Belle first enters the castle, the scenes are slowed down, so all of the billowing curtains in the hallways and her fluttering sleeves and folds in her skirt look like they're floating in water. She wanders the halls, mm. but the actress is on some sort of pulley rig, so she's gliding through these corridors. She's not walking. The beast himself is like this mystical being who at one point like produces smoke from somewhere under his clothes and at another point is like crying <laughs> diamonds. It's all very <laughs> dreamlike and it's fascinating to watch. Yeah. You're, you're it's it's to the point where you're not sure like is this a dream or is this real? Yeah. And like that's kind of the point of the film is that you don't know how much of this is being dreamt. But I'm not here to talk about right. film theory. <laughs> Okay. I am here to talk about some of the ways that Jean Cocteau fundamentally changed the way that the story of Beauty and the Beast is told. So, first of all, okay. we start off the story after Belle's father has fallen on hard times. She has two mm -hmm. sisters, not five, and only one brother. Most of society has started to ignore them since they've lost their fortunes, but Belle's brother has managed to hold on to one friend, a fellow named Avenant. Avenant is notable because he is very clearly the main influence for Gaston in Disney's version. He's handsome, he's confident, and he's definitely has a thing for Belle. And he's constantly trying to get her to marry him. Now, is her name Belle in yes. this story? In this yes. movie? Yeah, cool. Mostly because it is a French film. 
I don't know if there's so ever... Of course they're going to call her Yeah, I don't know if there's ever been, like, an English dub of it. I don't know why you would want to watch an English dub of it, because you have yeah. to be paying attention to the screen enough anyway that you might as well read the subtitles. You might as well read some captions, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's Belle, not because, like, that's the English version of her name, but because that is the French right. word for beauty. Yeah. Beauty. She right. spurns his advances, but it's not so much because he's a jerk, and it's more because she's just a really busy lady like trying to take care of her family because her sisters aren't helping they sure yeah, as heck are, are not they the same yeah they're jerks they're massive jerks <laughs> she's yeah she's the one that kind of takes care of like all of the cooking and cleaning and she's kind of like basically a cinderella character at this point uh and so yeah, yeah she's just like i don't have time for a relationship stop this knock it off <laughs> Another huge influence that this movie had on pretty much every version of the story told from this point on is the way that the beast looks. Because you have to remember, up to this point, there have not been a lot of, like, really concrete versions of the way that the beast look. He's not really described in Villeneuve's version or in Beaumont's version. So you just kind of get this vague idea of, like, somebody who doesn't look human. Whereas in this film, he has a lot of lion-based features, he actually reminds me a lot of the way that the cowardly lion looks in The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he's got like proportional human features. Like he doesn't have a really long but snout or anything, kinda... but he's just kind of hairy. Right. <laughs> and just yeah, kind of right, like right, a right. side note, I really like when I see illustrations of Beauty and the Beast that don't have a like very furry version of the beast. I've seen versions uh -huh. of like a reptilian looking version of the beast yeah. <laughs> like i mean if they don't really describe it you really yeah free to roam yeah or like with that idea. maybe a boar so he has like these huge tusks like sticking out yeah. of his mouth you know <laughs> <laughs> i just i think that the like lion or bear version is just a little too cuddly you know it's yep yeah, a little it's a bit little, it's too easy to just be like you know what oh i could cuddle <laughs> up with that <laughs> I could, I could yeah. live with this. Yeah. Yeah. Reptile. That would be yeah. hard Or to, like avian. That'd be hard Something to. with a really long beak. Like there's yeah. nothing cuddly about a something beak. Something with eyes that, yeah. Something with eyes that aren't easy to mm -hmm. look at. Like a bird Ooh, or a reptile. You know how goats have those like slit pupils? Oh, Whoa. man. Oh, so yes. creepy. Oof. Wow, I didn't even realize goats creeped me out until now, <laughs> but you're right. It's their eyes. <laughs> yeah. So it's just the interesting because, like, in Disney's animated version, like, I've read an article that where the animators have talked about, like, how they wanted the head of one animal, but the snout of another, and the horns of a third, but the claws of a fourth, and, like, they just had this long list mm -hmm. of, like, we wanted all of these features from all of these different mammals, but, like, come on, we know what's going on. This is a bit it's, much. It's cuddly you're going for something that can be yeah. like fierce you're going for something yeah soft. you yeah. want you want that like can look fierce and roar but you know give him puppy eyes no, and he eyes. looks yeah, you know yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> the cartoon beast does the puppy eye thing all yeah the time. <laughs> yeah so cocteau was kind of like the first guy that really made a concrete version of that look for the beast mm -hmm. it's just basically a really hairy guy basically like just give him a little bit of a waxing and he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, he'll probably be yeah. just fine. <laughs> It'll be hard to maintain. Another thing but, that he changed you know. that had a great impact on the way the story is told is the source of the beast's curse, where instead of being placed upon him by the wrath of a jealous fairy or an enchantress, it was his own family's fault for not believing in spirits. Mm -hmm. 
And as a consequence, the spirits, and this is just kind of like a general mystic thing, like the spirits placed a curse on him and he had to wait patiently for a young woman to come along and break it for him. This opened the doors to a lot of different takes on the origin of the curse. And more often than not, it's kind of been the fault of the beast or his family that he's cursed, not because of spite from like an evil magical being, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a sticking point for me. And I'll, I'll get to it a little bit more when we get to the 1991 version. But yeah, it's just... (laughs) The final thing that Kokdo did that isn't necessarily unique, but his version definitely popularized, was the idea of a castle that's actually, like, alive. Going back to kind of the surrealist feeling of the castle, there's these disembodied arms everywhere. Like, you want to walk down this dark hallway? No worries, there's these arms sticking out of the walls that magically light these candelabras for you. Need to fill up your wine? Don't even think of lifting a finger. The arm sticking out of the middle of the table will do it for you. It's great. Uh, It reminds me of Willy Wonka, and Willy Wonka creeped me out. Yes, (laughs) yeah, it's very creepy. Fun little fact, there is kind of a nod to this in the uh, live-action Disney version of Beauty and the Beast. Maurice looks up above the door, like when he's about to enter the castle and there's this arm that's holding a candelabra. And when I first saw it, I was like, Hey, 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 I know what that that is. I know what you're doing there. I love that. It's really rewarding when you notice Mm -hmm, those kinds mm -hmm. of things. You're like, Hey, Hey, that's from that. Yeah. It's from the thing. Yeah. Uh, so that, I mean, it's creepy, but I think that what Disney did kind of is a good payoff. It makes it worth it. I'm going to move on to another adaptation that we need to talk about before we get to 1991. And that is Robin McKinley's novelized version of the story, which is titled Beauty, a retelling of the story of Beauty and the Beast. I'm just going to call it beauty because I'm not going to do that mouthful the entire time that I talk about this. My dad, when he recommended the Jean Cocteau film to me, told me that Disney's version was basically a redoing of the 1946 movie. And dad, if you're Mm -hmm. listening, I have to respectfully disagree. (laughs) Disney basically did a movie version of McKinley's book and added enough Cocteau elements to it in order to legally get away with not having to attribute anything to McKinley. I first read it when I was in like fifth grade, I think. And I didn't really pick up on those things. I reread it recently. I think it was like last October mm. or something. And I was like, hey, hey, right. <laughs> I see what's going on here. Fans of this story yeah. will say that it's like the definitive version of the fairy tale. And I have to admit, I agree. If you're a fan of the mm. tale, you need to read Beauty by Robin McKinley. Like you have to. It's just that good. The story starts out very traditionally. Beauty and her family are forced to move to the countryside due to the misfortune that fell on her father and his shipping business. In this story, however, Beauty only has two sisters, and they're actually all very close to each other. Beauty actually sees herself as the least attractive and least talented of the three, and chooses to spend most of her time either reading or with her horse. Mm, sound familiar? <laughs> the story kind of continues on rather traditionally the ship comes back father leaves get lost steals the rose beauty goes back in her father's place it's when she starts settling into the castle that mckinley starts to shape it into her own story and lay some of the groundwork for more modern retellings of the story all of the servants are invisible so it seems as though all of the furniture is moving itself around giving it the illusion Mm -hmm. of being alive and that's actually how her oh, father okay. described the castle when he came back home. He was like, everything's alive. Like, I didn't have to pull out any chairs for myself. I didn't have to do this. I didn't. 
you know, I didn't. And they're Mm -hmm. just invisible. invisible. The beast is not cursed to keep his charm silent. So for the second act of the book, um, it focuses on the developing relationship between him and Beauty. And they actually spend a lot of time with each other. At one point, he loses his temper so badly, and he's mad at himself in this particular scene, and kind of mad with his curse. But he does lose his temper, and he loses it so badly that the servants are honestly very concerned for his well-being and his health. And his temper is kind of a relatively new addition to the story, or retellings of the story. This is kind of the first major point where it's like, Beast has a temper! He shows her the library, which is bigger than she could possibly imagine. And she initially doesn't (laughs) believe that the world even has that many books published, which the Beast reveals that the library is enchanted and has books from the future. Wow! Yeah, it's again not super relevant, but like she reads Sherlock Holmes, and she's like, "I have no idea what cars are, but if I can just kind of like escape into the book, I can deal with it. Like I don't have to worry about that." Is so yeah, it's just fun little details like this, and then finally her motivation for returning back home, which up to this point has only been homesickness, is to directly help out a family member. The stakes are fairly immediate. She needs to be able to tell one of her older sisters that the man she loves has finally returned home after being lost at sea for years before this sister marries someone else, which it's been years. So she's like, well, I'm going to give up hope, I guess, and I'm just going to make a sensible marriage. And Beauty's like, no, I need to go tell her. Because, <laughs> you know, Beauty yeah. knows because of enchanted mirrors and whatnot. So listening to all these uh-huh. characteristics, it becomes really super obvious that at least a couple of the people who worked on the story for Disney's animated feature had read the book and took a whole lot from Uh it. So now to 1991. But they didn't take enough, did they? (laughs) Disney's animated version of Beauty and the Beast. Again, I just, I want to reiterate, it's not the animation, it's not the music, it's just the way that they decided to tell the story, I think was just, it changed so much that it made it the least engaging version of the story. And I know... They, like, didn't have those charming details in it. like the the furniture being alive is pretty cute and you like uh, fun, but man, I I trade those for a servant monkeys. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like obvious like kidification, I guess is the word I'm going to mm-hmm. use, where you can't really have just monkeys when you can instead have the talking sidekicks. Yeah, like, gotta have the talking yep. sidekicks. It is In the formula. It's the, it's the Disney formula and Disney had to make a lot of changes to the story because of being in the middle of the Disney Renaissance. Beauty and the Beast was mm-hmm. actually de- like in development since Walt Disney's time. He really, really wanted to do a version of Beauty and the Beast, and so it was one of those stories that was just kind of like constantly put on the back burner because, well, mm-hmm. it's not the right time. Well, it's not the right time. Right. But with The Little Mermaid, finally the studio was like, yes, now is the right time. Originally, it wasn't going to be a musical, But they looked at The Little Mermaid and they were like, we definitely have to make this a musical. And that actually very heavily influenced the story. It changed it from having basically an evil fairy as the villain who really only shows up for like 30 seconds to having a big, boisterous, egotistical singing singing (laughs) bad guy whose presence is all throughout the movie. And so, and is super yeah, fun to watch. sure. He's. I think honestly, I think Gaston is one of my top five favorite Disney songs. Just period. Yeah, it is so. The music in that that movie mm-hmm. is great. The point is, it's great. Disney's version is built for Broadway, and so 
you kind of lose huh. a lot of the story elements or they're changed to adapt for the stage. A lot of, you know, okay. a lot of people like the movie in and of itself, and that's fine. It's a great movie. If you love it and if Belle is your favorite character, that's fine. I'm not here to drag it down. I am here to voice my right. own opinion. But I think sure. that it was kind of an odd choice to say we want to do an animated version of a Broadway film. And it's it's a yeah. formula that's worked out for Disney for years now. I feel like oh, when yeah. I left Frozen, like when I left the theater mm -hmm. watching Frozen for the first time, I was like, that felt like a Broadway film. Yeah, yeah, that's how I was with Tangled mm -hmm. too. It just felt like boisterous and exciting and really entertaining songs and stuff. But yeah, it works, but it is a little bit strange to just see that animated instead of so, you know, live. So, of breaking it down, the first sticking point that I have is with the Beast. Previous retellings had alluded to some sort of hubris on his part that resulted in his curse, but for the most part, the curse comes from a vindictive fairy or spirit or god or goddess or whatever. Whatever sure. that was. <laughs> Instead, in this version, he's changed from a perfectly well-behaved, charming young man into a short-tempered, egotistical jerk. I already think that's bad enough, but if we're also going to talk about like the pre-2017, I'm going to call it a reboot of, of okay. this story... It had this extended universe thanks to the Broadway, like the actual Broadway version of Beauty and the Beast. And also there were two Disney Toon Studios films that were released that kind of expanded on this universe. In this extended universe, Disney has decided that a 10-year-old deserves to be cursed for being selfish and rude to strangers. Yeah, and not letting a stranger into Yeah, not letting a stranger <laughs> into so his house. Up. It's super messed up. And I, I dislike it because... The story doesn't focus as much. No, it doesn't focus on as much on the growth that beauty has to go through in order to like be accepting of someone who is different and who is intimidating and scary. It 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 splits that focus. So some of it is on that, but some of it is also on the growth that the prince has to go through. And I know a lot of people see mm -hmm. that as a very good thing, but I think it just starts to make things a little messy. You know? Yeah. And yeah, again, it does. it's a really weird sticking point to me that Disney was like, yeah, this 10-year-old was like, no, I don't know you. You're not welcome into my home. And the Enchantress was like, I'm beautiful, though, so now you're ugly. So too bad for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it seems... Uh, yeah, it seems a little weird. It, I bet they were just kind of looking for a consequence, action and consequence kind of a thing and learning from your being responsible for what you've, you know, done in your past, like a good moral at the end of sure. the movie or something like that. But the, I don't know. It kind of missed the it mark did. if that's what they were trying yeah, to do. Yeah, it did. And not only that, but I really like the idea of just good people trying to overcome obstacles presented to them by bad people. And... Mm -hmm. With, it's classic. Yeah. Like, why can't we have a story where it's like, good good people have bad things happen to them by bad people. Yeah. And this is how you overcome it. Because a lot of stories are, like, focused on personal growth, and that's fine. But I think that we need more stories focused on what do you do when you're in the right and when you're a perfectly good person and somebody else does something crappy and you have to deal with that. I think that's yeah. a lesson that we don't get taught enough as kids, and so... That's a really important yeah. one, too, because it happens to It everyone. does. It does happen to everyone. Can you imagine how much anxiety comes from, like, blaming yourself for situations? 
and yeah. like that happens to me all the time where I'm like what did I do what did I do what did I do mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah there's one strike for me this actually kind of leads into strike two for me which is I can't see any rhyme or reason as to how Belle falls in love with the beast and again this is kind of speaking to the extended universe of Disney's Beauty and the Beast um mm-hmm. the beast is illiterate in their version like in and in the, the Broadway play oh, in the cartoon yeah version? no yeah. in the Broadway play like there's an extended version of the song um what is it like something there there may be something yeah, there, yeah where you know he gives her the library and she's like oh that's great let's read this book and he's like I don't want to read it and she keeps on pushing it and he's like I don't want to read it because I can't read and so like that's part of their you know coming closer is her teaching him how to read mm-hmm. which I guess it's a good bonding exercise but if you're going to have a character that is not just literate but extremely interested in books, books. <laughs> you know it'd be nice for her to have someone that she could talk about yeah <laughs> yeah it really would and so like I just I look at their relationship and I'm like I don't get it what do you guys have in common what do you guys have to talk about they're in the same castle and it's just faded probably <laughs> That's the Disney, that's the Disney it is. explanation. Yeah. A lot of people will kind of make fun of the story and be like, it's Stockholm Syndrome. And it's not Stockholm Syndrome. If you want to, yeah. No, it's not, and I've heard that Yeah, before. if you want to talk about Stockholm Syndrome, then talk about, like, Frollo and Quasimodo. That's, yeah. that's Stockholm that's Syndrome. That's a great yeah. example. That is so much better of an example. Because, I mean, Belle doesn't really put up with the Beast's temper and his shenanigans until... Like, after he starts to calm down and after he starts to change. And that's kind of going back to, like, my first strike against the movie, which is, like, her opportunity for growth and development is kind of undercut by his arc, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Another strike that I have against the film, and this ties into his temper, is the fact that she is treated like crap. She is imprisoned initially, and she is yelled at, and she is given restrictions on where she can go and what she can do, and it's dark. Like, I think it's unnecessarily dark. dark. It's really ugly. There's, like, no... Yeah, it's weird to me that they would put that... I don't want to say put that in a kid's movie because it's totally inappropriate, because, I mean, it is... I don't know. I It's important, I guess, to, to learn about, you know the dynamics of relationships and stuff like that. But I mean, when the original story was, I think a lot more interesting and a lot less kind of con- a contrived situation. And it didn't involve, you know, an abusive. Right. Relationship. Yeah. And if you look at it again, going way back to Villeneuve's personal situation. And if you look at it as a metaphor for how to deal with arranged marriages, all of a sudden it takes a really super dark turn where you're like, Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> like like she's stuck here she's actually imprisoned like this she's being abused (laughs) it's dark i I mean they must have just done that so they can take the beast that much farther i mean is that that's what your grief is is that maybe they maybe they made this random kind of detail in the beast story so that he could go he could you know grow even grow even more by the end of the the movie or something like that i think it's also kind of commentary to modern generations and the idea of honor because Belle stays at the castle not out of a sense of duty or honor to the situation 
but because she wants to take her father's place as a prisoner. Right. And she didn't feel like she Yeah, in every single version before that, it wasn't that anyone was imprisoned. It's that the father felt like he had a duty to, you know, follow through on his word. Like, I'm going to come back. I'm going to uh-huh. atone for my crime. You're right. I shouldn't have stolen anything. And the character right. of Beauty and Belle feels was obligated. like, no, it's my fault. I'm going to go ahead and take your place. I yeah. think that that's a lesson that... That's not right. Yeah, I think that's a lesson that maybe could have been taught to current generations. Because, like, what is anybody's word worth nowadays? Really? Right. I mean, the idea of promises and handshake deals is just kind of antiquated, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's too easy. They, they don't really mean anything anymore. They've lost their savor because no one really values them for yeah. what they actually So I represent. think that Disney's version of Beauty and the Beast is kind of a commentary on, like, well, why, like, we're going to have kids ask, why doesn't, like, why don't they just not go back? You know? Which I think yeah. is a very valid question. <laughs> like... Yes, it is. And it is a question a kid would mm-hmm. ask, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, why do they have to go back? Well, because they promised. Well, can't they just break their promise? Well, <laughs> I guess. Well, the, yeah. But the important thing, blah, 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 blah. Right. Yeah. It would yeah. lead to a good discussion. Yeah. So, like, on the one hand, I see why that needed to be changed. But on the other hand, why not take the opportunity to teach the value of keeping promises, you know? Yeah. And, and having honor. Yeah. Why make it so harsh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like she was literally kidnapped yeah, she really in that is. movie. So I think that might be the end of my list of grievances. <laughs> I have a lot well, of I'm like... I'm sorry that, that, that Disney ruined that <laughs> I movie. <know. laughs> it sounds like It sounds like a much... I didn't know anything about... You know, I, the only Beauty and the Beast I ever knew of was the cartoon one, of course. I didn't know any of the other better details that were in other better mm-hmm, versions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I still really enjoyed the movie growing up, but I just had no idea. And I didn't really see I I didn't really see those things like the weird kind of abusive thing that tam- like temper thing he had going on and that she was being held against her will. I don't know. It just didn't register. I was like, oh, well, yeah, it's Disney and D- Disney has evil villains and evil villains do evil things and stuff, you know? Yeah. But it's kind of messed it up. It is. It's messed up. And I think what's even more messed up is that retellings from that point on were very heavily influenced by Disney's version. Yeah, they're all the same. What were your opinions on the most recent one, the like the live action remake? I Are they pretty much the exact same as the Disney one? No, actually, I liked it. A lot of, yeah? like, I just, I have all these, like, really unpopular opinions about Disney's versions I really liked the 2017 version and again it's because I really prefer the story of Beauty and the Beast over um like the musical numbers and the bright colors and stuff and so a lot of the things that made the animated version work um are kind of gone from this version like you mentioned it felt like a lot of things were just kind of cut and pasted together yeah and like i get that i'm not saying it is a good film with like a capital f it was it was enjoyable i i was 
I I think it's called like uh, Frision or something. It's I, it's a Reddit sub, and it's like uh, where you post like the feeling that you get when you get goosebumps when you hear a really good song or, mm-hmm. or something like that. I had Frision all throughout the BR guest one because it was just so magnificent. <laughs> it was really I was like, good. I don't, even, I don't even like Beauty and the Beast. I don't even like musicals, but I cannot help but just be so excited that every everyone's just partying and singing. Yeah. And, <laughs> It's so grand. I, that that movie was it was really really colorful. It was almost as if I was still watching the cartoon, but it was with just I mean so much of it was CGI, but still yeah. like even with Emma Watson on screen, the way she moved and the screenshots and the way they cut away, it seemed like it was a like it seemed like it was a, still a cartoon. Mm-hmm. It was really weird. Yeah. Yeah, it it was kind of odd in the aesthetic, but I I liked it because when you're talking about a fairy tale like I think it's really hard to pull off the, like, realistic fairy tale. I think there's really oh, only yeah. one movie that's done that extremely well. And I'm, I'm going to just sidestep here and talk about Ever After just for, like, 30 seconds. Oh. I think that is the okay. definitive version of Cinderella. And it has no yeah. magic in it whatsoever, which is fascinating to me. Because usually most yeah. of those versions have to have Stories. magic yeah. in it. Yeah, it's, like, one of the yeah, bases. But it doesn't. And the movie's comfortable with that it doesn't try to make excuses for not having magic yeah like the story kind of stands on like parts mm-hmm. of the themes in it yeah and so it can get away with things that are a little less magical looking and it still feels yeah. natural so right. you know when you place yourself in this world that has magic i'm okay with things being brighter and you know, a little yeah, less natural because there's fantastical. Yeah, there's that explanation there. There were Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, there were characterizations that I liked better in the twenty seventeen version than I did in the nineteen ninety one version. The first one being mm-hmm. that Belle, I think, shows her bookishness a little bit better in in this mm-hmm. movie. And it oh my gosh, there is <laughs> there is a creator that I follow on social media. I like a lot of the stuff that she does, but she immediately complained about how Belle's love of books was not as prominent in the 2017 version. And I was like, oh, I am so close to unfollowing you because you are so, 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 so wrong. Well, they there are little references to books like just kind of sprinkled throughout the it's it's yeah, like Belle's relationship with, you know, reading is a little bit more prominent, but also just throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, they quoted Romeo and Juliet and then there was there was one more that I don't know, it kind of centered around books, but not in a really annoying overt right. way. It was just kind of dropping little hints like like, you know, she's really knowledgeable about books. Like yeah. quoting Romeo and Juliet, yeah. you know. There's the fact that her town only has like seven books, and you can tell that mm-hmm. she's read every single one of them a dozen times, and it doesn't matter no. to her cuz she loves no. books she and she wants loves to get lost reading somewhere. Yeah. yeah. There's the fact that she tries to teach a little girl how to read. She wants to spread the love yeah. to to children. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, like they quote Romeo and Juliet to each other. And yeah. when she sees the library, she's just like, "Oh my gosh, like have you read all of these?" It's so sweet. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of segues into the next thing that I like about the the story of the 2017 version, which is he also clearly appreciates books. He would not have yeah. quoted back to her Mm-mm. or finished the quote from Romeo and Juliet. Um, had he not read it enough, or at least appreciated that enough, he that he remembered even what she was talking about. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that he has an opinion on it as well, and I like that his opinion yeah. is not the same as hers. 
but yeah and i'm sure that just makes their relationship all the stronger yeah just they both have a topic Uh to talk yeah and it's implied that he does read a lot i mean he says like oh i had a very expensive education but you look at the library and she says well have you read all of these and you know his responses well some of them are written in greek which implies that yes he has read all of the ones that he can Mm -hmm. read and you don't Mm -hmm. have to pay for people to force you to read really not that many books so they have that in common with each other and i really appreciate that yeah i really appreciate that gaston is a multi-dimensional character because when the movie starts out and i think this was really interesting and i don't know if this was on purpose or not but when the movie starts out, you're like, well, yeah, I mean, he obviously has an ego, but he doesn't seem to be, like, a bad guy. Like, No, he just is really confident. Yeah, like, Pell, why are you, like, shunning him so much? Just invite him nice. Just invite him over to dinner. Just give him a chance. <laughs> and then you find out, like, oh, he's got some deep psychological scars. Like, nobody yeah, likes like- going to war, really. But if uh-huh. Gaston does, then that really implies that there's, like, some major issues there. Yeah, that he enjoys... Yeah, he enjoys that. It says a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I loved that actor. I had, I have, I have no idea who it was, but his voice, I was just blown away sure. by his voice. Yeah. He's so boomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it was so yeah. fun to watch. Yeah, him. I agree. And and I think that the live action version of Gaston was a lot more engaging than the animated version. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if it had to do with the fact that like it's real life or if it was his voice or you know whatever it was whatever it was i enjoyed a lot more yeah uh i think i think the song evermore is going to win hands down for best song at the oscars was that the was that the b song yeah okay i didn't like really i didn't like any of the new songs that they said oh man i and i and i i heard my um uh, Michael's parents were raving about this movie and said and said this exact same thing that that song is going to win awards. So I was like, I don't know, maybe maybe I wasn't in the right mindset. Maybe it really is good, but I just I just wasn't impressed. You know, it took know me it took me a couple of listens, honestly. Yeah. So like maybe just give it a couple of listens. Listen to yeah. the Josh Groban version, and I know I know <laughs> your opinion on Josh Groban, and I have shared that opinion. And honestly, after I had listened to it a couple of times, I was like. I hate that I have to admit that I like this. It's good. It is good. He's talented. And Josh Groban was exactly the right person to do the cover of that song. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Josh Groban's voice is the one that gives me goosebumps too involuntarily. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, <sighs> yeah. You know, I don't like his this type of music, and I'm not crazy about his voice. But man, he really does. He 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 really is very talented. Yeah. Yeah. He really is. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, there's just a lot more story elements that I like about the yeah. 2017 version. Uh, and I bring up Evermore just because I really like that they show the Beast like, and his feelings towards Belle as she's leaving. I think that is yeah. something that is missing from even the original version. I mean, it's kind mm-hmm. of mentioned in passing, like, oh, he can't live without her. But it just seems kind of pitiful, you know? But seeing that passion of, like, being said. I love her running upstairs yeah she, running upstairs and standing on balconies yeah, she has changed yeah. me for the better i do not want to yeah. admit that she is gone like yeah. i think that kind of passion is really important for you yeah. know the way that their relationship is built up uh i like i mean i like the shout outs to the originals and and a lot of the 
retellings. Yeah, like true. I said, I, I like that Jean Cocteau had a cute little shout out with the arm there. I don't know if you noticed right. this, but the name of the village that they live in is Villeneuve, mm-hmm. which is oh, that's yeah, really sweet too. <laughs> a nice shout out to yeah, the original just, author. Yeah, it's really rewarding for people who are super familiar with the story. Yeah, just like, hey, yeah, that is really cool. And I noticed too one of the parts that kind of just really creeped me out for some reason. I remember in the cartoon when they're singing "Be Our Guest," mm-hmm. right when he says the first "Be Our Guest," it does a really close up of. Um, Lumiere's face mm-hmm. and it's just kind of eventually zooms out but it did this it did that exact same kind of scene thing in the new one and being that close to Lumiere's weird metal human <laughs> face was so unnerving yeah. they all kind of creeped me out especially Mrs. Potts mm-hmm. like it's not even a real it's not even a real mouth on her face it's a painted right. mouth and how is she uh, I know it's magic it's magic yeah. that's the explanation I like, I, I like that though I like that though because if you were in that situation you would be creeped out yeah exactly by, by talking housewares <sighs> yeah that's a good point so I think that that's a good thing honestly so yeah I don't know I think as far as like a boogers and bad drivers episode goes yeah. like it's not that I hate the 1991 version of Beauty and the Beast. Uh-huh. But it sure does rank pretty far down on my list of adaptations of the story. Yeah. And it just, it kind of irritates me that so many people are like, oh, it's the greatest Disney movie ever made. And I'm like, is it really, though? It's a, uh, it, yeah, it's gotta be like a fanatic thing. It wasn't... <laughs> not fanatic but wasn't beauty and the beast one of the it was the first movie to use like that different animation style so it was pretty like groundbreaking at that time mm-hmm. and the music too i think is what also sealed the deal it's just it's the greatest disney movie but i agree i agree with you i just i don't believe it i don't think it is and especially from what i've learned from what it's left out it clearly could have been a lot cooler <laughs> it's Talking monkeys man it's it's a great broadway show it is not yeah. a great kids movie is you know, i think what I, I, i'll I, say i i'd agree with yeah. that so thank you for indulging me on my uh hate rant here of for sure Beauty and the Beast. i heard a while ago about i heard a while ago about how much you disliked it and i've been curious ever since but i'm glad you saved <laughs> i'm glad you saved it all for now because i'm just so pleasantly surprised by how i uh, how right you are <laughs> <laughs> yes you've you've swayed me you've convinced me (laughs) good that's that's all i was hoping to do so uh that'll do it for us folks thanks for listening in i'm audrey stratton i'm carmen this has been kitten whiskers and kanye see ya I, I do that every time. I just have to. I feel like I have to say bye. And we, I did that in the last one too. And we both just start cracking up because it's just. I was like, see you next time. Like, what the hell? Why did you say that? It's so creepy. <laughs>